0: Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamperin. Not much middle ground in Hamilton's transit strike. I'm also talking about the beer store. Politicians who are not using their work phones, a Grey Cup chat with CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, get a financial boost today and breaking a Guinness World Record. The GMH podcast begins now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Yesterday, we had a an unbelievable response to our poll question of the day, which basically asked you, which side are you on in the HSR strike? HSR workers or the city of Hamilton? We got more than 800 votes, which tells me that there might have been a lot of union workers or ATU Local 107 workers and supporters obviously voting, because 83% of you said they are on the side of HSR workers. And only 17% said the city of Hamilton. And it was nearly a 50-50 split pretty much all morning. But we got a tremendous response on email and text and on X as well. And so because I couldn't get to all of that yesterday, I'll dive into some of that reaction today, including this email from David, who says, Hello, Rick. I find it very rich that the city spokesperson for the bus negotiations, Laura Fontana, who got a $19,000 raise this year, who worked from home for the last three years in her comfy PJ, safe and sound, says the city can't afford an approximate $15,000 raise over four years. That email from David. George writes, I support the city. Hamilton taxpayers are already looking at a 14 percent increase. Where do HSR union members think the money is going to come from for their wage increases? Also, how efficiently is the HSR run? Nashville, Tennessee transit riders pay only one dollar and their buses are much cleaner. Have a great day, George. Tatiana also emailed in and says as an HSR transit rider for over 40 years, We have one of the most efficient transit systems around. What other city can boast 39 elaborate routes, take you practically to your doorstep, or go from one end of the city into the next on one bus ride like the HSR Transit can? But thanks to our outstanding bus drivers that makes our transit system reliable and safe, not only do the bus drivers have to deal with unruly passengers, but motorists who cut them off while keeping passengers safe at all times. On top of it all, Tatiana writes, bus drivers have to steal away to go to the bathroom, often running in and out of and some eating on the run as well. Mayor Horvath and the city director are being indifferent when they say that they will go no further than what the city is offering the drivers. But the city speaks from a position of comfort in a controlled and safe working environment, unlike the bus drivers who are frontline workers. I stand behind the HSR bus drivers 110%. Tatiana, thank you for that email. A couple of texts to get to. Dave says, HSR essential service. City needs to cut non-essential spending. Chris says, I'm for unions except for when it hurts the public who has no choice. Adele says standing in solidarity with HSR workers, a full-time worker should be able to make a living wage in the city they work. This other person says on the side of the city. And Veronica says good morning, I'm definitely on the HSR side. They deserve a fair deal and tolerate a lot of abuse on the job. I also would like to add that HSR should be an essential service as thousands of people rely on it. Monies should be taken away from non-essential services to fund HSR. Just a small glimpse of the response to this HSR strike.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's
0: talk a little bit about broskies. because the beer store, it appears, could soon be dying a tragic death. Word is the Ford government is not expected to renew a master framework agreement with the beer store, which would mean that beer could be sold just about At any corner store. Dr. Ian Lee is an associate professor in the Spratt School of Business at Carleton University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Lee, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Now, this this promise, I guess, fills a a years old campaign promise that Doug Ford made a few years ago, but will it spell the end of the beer store?
2: Um, I hope so. Um, I say that because we've had this big conversation for the past year or two in Canada. We, meaning all of us in Canada, we're talking about higher prices all the time. And I've certainly spoken to people, to you and other hosts at CHML, on on this subject. You know, the Competition Bureau has said that too many of our industries are concentrated, which means we have very little competition. You know, we talk about grocery retailing being concentrated, where we have five major retailers, then thousands of smaller retailers, independent corner stores. And people say that's too concentrated. Well, the beer store is a monopoly. You can only get beer at the beer store. You can get a very small, limited choice set at, as we know, some designated grocery stores. We're probably the only, country, the only province or state left, to my knowledge, in North America with such a model. I've traveled all over the states over my lifetime. I've been on road trips to 44 to 50 U.S. states, and uh, that's over a period of 35, 45 years. And I can't think of any state where they say you can only get it from the government. When I say the government, a government-mandated monopoly. So this produces, no matter what people are saying, this is going to lead to higher prices. That's just bogus. This is a monopoly. And we have known for 300 years of studying economic behavior of firms, monopolies charge higher prices. Competitive markets charge lower prices because of competition. So I'm going to go out on the limb and argue that the end of the beer store monopoly is going to lead to lower prices. It's going to lead to far more competition. And secondly, there's another point here that nobody's really talking about. <clears throat> the corner stores, this is going to be a big help for them. Uh the minimum wage is going up every year and and it's and it minimum wage falls overwhelmingly on small businesses. Big businesses don't pay minimum wage. And so they're really hurting. And so if we uh allow uh normal comp- competition as they do in other provinces and as they do in the US states and across Europe where I've also been many many times, uh, then this is going to help those corner stores because it'll give them more traffic bringing into these small corner stores that are struggling. So that's a boon for small business. This is a boon a benefit to consumers. The only people that are going to lose out of this are the big three. These are foreign, gigantic, multi-billion-dollar beer companies that are all foreign-owned. Nothing wrong with that. But they're the ones who are going to lose on this, and that's why they're so opposed.
0: Why has it taken so long to do this? I mean, you, you referenced all these U.S. states and all the other provinces have yes. you know have fallen... Uh, through the model that you identified, and, and we here in Ontario are just mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, just moseying along the road, nothing to see here. Why is it I've taking been, so long?
2: I've been mystified by it uh, from the time I first started traveling to the States in the 70s when I saw how it wasn't leading to the end of civilization, selling beer and corniceous <laughs> or wine.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, it didn't lead to the decline and collapse of the United States of America. Uh, I've been to France and Italy and Germany and UK, etc., and Portugal. Um, and I've been to just about every country in Europe, with the exception of the Scandinavian countries. And they all sell it in grocery stores. And, and nobody's suggesting that Europe is about to fall off the cliff, where everyone's become, you know, an alcoholic uh, because of the uh, accessibility to alcohol. It's just bogus. This claim uh, it's going to lead to unbelievable health uh, decline is just nonsense. It is just nonsense. And uh, so we, uh, of course, there'll still be checks. You have to have a photo ID to buy it, yeah. just like there's other products that have restrictions on it, like uh, weapons guns and that. I don't have a gun, but you know, you have to. I understand you have to have certain uh, identification required to, to get one. So, there'll be restrictions around the sale of alcohol, which will be enforced just like cigarettes, by the way.
0: We are so used to bringing our bottles, our empties, back to the beer store. And if the beer store dies, are we just going to, can you envision just us going to the corner store or the grocery store? I mean, that that seems like an easy task.
2: It is. In fact, the grocery stores, uh, and there's, you know, we know they're large. There's five of them, not just Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro. There's this place called Walmart, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're huge, and so is Costco, and that's just to name five, and they're all getting big time into recycling, not just for wine bottles. They're getting into recycling of all kinds of – they're they're actually a more natural place to locate recycling depots because there's so much plastic for the plastic packaging that's essential to keep food safe and secure um, – and I have talked to people in the business about this, the grocery business, that plastic is extremely hygienic uh, at keeping out, you know, things like listeria from fresh fish and fresh food that spoils very quickly. So there's going to be recycling. I think in, well, in the very near future we're going to see that the the, re- the grocery retailers will be designated as the recycling depots for everything plastic or glass because they sell. Just about everything they sell goes out the door in a plastic bottle or a glass bottle. So they are the natural place, I think, to ramp up uh, recycling. So I think this is actually going to be a boon for recycling. It's going to make one-stop shopping at the grocery store for your recycling rather than have to go to different stores depending on what type of product you bought.
0: Sounds like a win-win-win, and we should have been in this place years ago. But uh, here we are. Dr. Lee, appreciate the time as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Ian Lee is an associate professor in the Spratt School of Business at Carleton University. You heard, you heard from him more competition, lower prices, good for corner stores. And those minimum wage employees that work at those corner stores, This should have been done years ago, years ago. You're listening
1: to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: There's a new report out from Global News that shows senior cabinet ministers in the Ford government are barely using their work phones. Hmm. You can check out the story online at 900chml.com and globalnews.ca or just listen to our next guest who's going to regale you with what is happening at Queen's Park or what is not happening at Queen's Park. Colin Demello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News and joins us on GMH. Colin, good morning.
4: Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Maybe we'll start with this. What are the rules when it comes to phone usage for those in government?
4: Yeah, when when any uh, member of government uh, takes office, whether you're just an MPP or whether you're a cabinet minister, even if you are uh, just the average staff member in the Ontario government, there are strict rules that you have to adhere by. And you have to use your government-issued devices um, because all of that information is subject to retention and to Freedom of Information Act laws. So if you're an average citizen, as an example, you want to figure out how the government arrived at a certain decision, you should be able to use the Freedom of Information Act to get emails, uh, phone calls, text messages, all of that kind of stuff to be able to determine how the government arrived at a particular decision. And this is not anything new. This has been a longstanding tradition of the government that is backed up by law. But what we've been seeing, and it, it's not only with this government in particular, but we've been seeing with this government an erosion of that records keeping uh, uh, you know, uh, processes. Uh, we know through the Auditor General's report into the Greenbelt, as an example, that staff are routinely using their private email accounts like Gmail. Uh, we've heard that ministers and other Government officials might be using things like Signal or WhatsApp to communicate with each other. And all of this is done seemingly to kind of keep information away from uh, the public record system so that, you know, they can essentially keep some of that decision-making process under wraps, right? Who are they consulting with? Where do these ideas come from? What were the inner kind of conversations and and debates and, and perhaps warnings about whether legislation could go wrong, all of those things are kept off the books so that the general public doesn't have access to it and we have less transparency in our government. So
0: Global News filed a Freedom of Information request and basically found that f- there there were five ministers that were using their uh, government-issued devices very infrequently.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and so to preface all of this, Global News has been engaged in a transparency battle with the premier's office. Uh, You know, Premier Doug Ford uh, routinely uses his private cell phone number, hands it out all the time and talks to a whole host of people. The government has admitted that he uses it for government business, but they are refusing to release those records, uh, you know, claiming that. It is it is in some cases he might be talking to constituents about privacy matters. So out of curiosity, we wanted to know, is it just the premier or is this a larger problem within the government? Is there a culture issue here? And so we use the Freedom of Information Act laws to target five government ministers. During key moments in their uh, portfolios, right—the education minister during last year's fight with QP over education um, uh, labor negotiations, the finance minister while he's crafting the twenty twenty three budget, and, and so on and so forth—and we found that in this, in these given one month periods, these ministers use them between two minutes to 20 minutes of their government issued cell phones in total. The health minister during a one month period just before she had tabled new legislation that would dramatically kind of alter the healthcare system. She used her cell phone zero minutes, there were no records at all of her using her government issued cell phone for uh, talk or text. And, And that I think for a lot of people would defy belief because in this modern age. You know, our cell phones are always at our hips. And that is true as well for cabinet ministers.
0: That is wild. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief at Global News. And you can check out uh, this story online at 900CHML.com and GlobalNews.ca. And from reading the story, it sounds like uh, ministers were saying, well, listen, we had a lot of face-to-face meetings. We were using virtual meeting software. Is,
4: is there any evidence to back that up? Well, I, I, that, that is traditionally what the government does, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you take a look at your own kind of workflow over the course of the day, you might not necessarily be calling your boss, but you might be involved in a Teams meeting with your boss. And that's what they're saying is happening here, right? When they're talking about legislation with a whole host of people, uh, including government staffers and civil servants, that some some of these conversations might be happening over Teams, over conference calls, and therefore, they might not be using their own cell phone uh, to, to make any calls. That, that being said, you know, are they using their private cell phone? To make phone calls to any kind of constituents or any kind of um, you know stakeholder, that is another question that we don't have the answer to. But you know, the opposition certainly suspects that that is uh, being done. And I think ultimately, too, it's a question of the culture in the government. Right? Does the government believe in transparency? Does the government believe in using their official devices, which are then subject to Freedom of Information Act laws? Or do they not? We know that the premier doesn't use his private, uh, his government issued cell phone. He uses his private cell phone for government business, and I think it it seems like he has set the direction at the top, and everyone down below is also following that direction.
0: Very interesting times indeed at Queens Park. Colin, always
4: appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Colin Demello is our Queens Park bureau chief at Global News. And again, you can check out more information on this uh, story. On globalnews.ca and 900CHML.com.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML.
0: Breakup week continues in Hamilton and in his State of the League address. Commissioner Randy Ambrose called the 2023 CFL campaign one of the most successful in history. Joining us now is the Commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Randy Ambrose. Randy, how are you? I'm good, Rick. how are you this morning? I'm fantastic. You called this twenty twenty three CFL season one of the most successful ever. Why is that?
5: Well, just uh, looking at the numbers, Rick, it was um, it was a remarkable year. you know, first of all, uh, you know, to credit to our coaches and and players and all football operations staff we you know we put on an incredible product this year. you know uh, of sixty percent of our games were decided in the final three minutes. scoring was up. Uh, you know yardage on big games was up all of the things you know this fun fast and entertaining product of ours uh, was shining brightly this year and then off the field Rick we had uh, you know our 25 to 54 you know TV ratings were up 34 percent our our playoff performance was nothing short of spectacular the the, the Montreal Toronto game had 1.35 million viewers, uh, 450,000 viewers. Uh, those numbers are up dramatically from from 2022. And the trend lines in, in all areas of our business are really positive. So we just everywhere we look, the hard work, you know, really the investments that our governors, a shout-out to, to Bob Young and Scott Mitchell and the Hamilton Sports Group with Stelco and Jim Lawson. But along with all of their partners across the country, they've made some investments in our business over the last several years and it's starting to show great results.
0: When it comes to attendance and league revenue, are we also seeing some success there as well?
5: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, and this is where it gets very exciting, particularly in our major markets, you know, we had uh, Toronto's game day revenue up 40% this year. You know, we saw the largest single uh, crowd ever for Argos game at BMO Field on last Saturday, 26,000 plus fans and, you know, we've seen all year long in Toronto what's going on in, in BC with Amar Goldman. We had 30 plus thousand fans for the West Semi final, and the energy there is fantastic. You know, with Pierre Carl Palado, you know, joining us, uh, you know, earlier this year, and what, a, and what a positive change that was. You know, we're seeing growth in the numbers there. So just across the board, we're seeing fantastic results. And then again, going back on the field, the real credit, you know, to the players and coaches because they put on a great show for us this
0: year. I know it's a challenge uh, in making the schedule each and every year because of the odd number of teams that we have, but will we have a more balanced schedule in 2024? And when I say more balanced, are we going to have every team face off against each other, both home and away?
5: Yeah, and that was one of the changes that the management council, which, by the way, Rick, is made up of all of our team presidents, and I I chair that council, and that was a decision we made earlier this year, is that going into 24, we would go back to the old balanced, uh, balanced schedule format. And we're really looking forward to that. I should also say, though, Rick, that the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday during the summer was a blockbuster hit for us. And, uh, and I think in, in part, it explains why we've had so much success with our ratings and attendance.
0: For decades now, we've been talking about, hoping, dreaming about a tenth team in the league. Are we any closer to that here in 2023?
5: Well, you know, Rick, we are in conversations with a with a very interested party. Uh, We're, you know, those conversations are advancing. You know, there are still issues that have to be resolved and decisions that will have to be made. But uh, it's very encouraging to see uh, a, a very serious, very qualified potential investor looking at that opportunity. Rick, the the bottom line is we've got a I've got a mandate from the governors to pursue expansion. Uh we're, you know, we're talking actively, very actively in Atlantic Canada. We also need to really start talking seriously about cities like Quebec City because it's such a great would be such a great market for us. And the profile of Quebec City, it's got a huge amateur football community, it's got passionate sports fans. So I think we are um, we are on the right track. It's, you know, it's certainly taking longer than anyone wants, but I believe we're on the right track. And again, the shout out goes to our governors, to the owners, you know, for their support and their long-term vision for a, you know, for a bigger, stronger CFL.
0: Is the goal by 2030 to get that done?
5: No, sooner than that I would tell you because I'm not that patient a guy Rick to be perfectly <laughs> honest. So I just no, I, I think it's sooner than that. Like our, our media rights um, expire at the end of 2026, our global rights. Um, you know, We're hoping to kind of lean in ahead of those media rights with, uh, with a lot of momentum, which is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about what's been happening in the league and this year in particular it's going to give us the momentum we need to make sure that, you know, we, we can continue to grow our business. We we obviously want to reward our players and we reward our coaches. And the way we do that is by growing the game and, and growing our revenues and making sure that, uh, you know, we can share that with, uh, with those key stakeholder groups. So no, Rick, I think it's going to, I think it's going to happen sooner. We're working hard at it. You know, there's certainly no guarantees in this. Uh, What do they say? Death and taxes, uh, Rick, but uh, I think we're going to. I think we're going to see success in this area, and we'll
0: see it sooner. Uh, we got to run. Uh, wish I had a little more time to ask you about the Great Cup game itself and the festival, but we're plum out of time. Appreciate your time, Commissioner
5: Rick. Always great to talk to you, and have a great day and Happy Great Cup Week.
0: Same to you, Randy Ambrose, the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: November is Financial Literacy Month, and communities across Canada, including here in Hamilton, are hosting financial literacy initiatives like Money Matters. We're going to tell you about this coming up. This program. Um, benefits adult learners, newcomers to Canada, indigenous peoples, people with diverse abilities, and teaches numerical skills, saving and borrowing money to get you on a better path financially. Here to talk about it is the Executive Director of ABC Life Literacy Canada, Alison Howard. Alison, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Well, this year's theme of... Uh, Financial Literacy Month, I hear, is check up on your financial health. And my guess is that a lot of people are actually doing that, maybe being forced to do that because of their finances, and they probably don't like what they see.
6: (laughs) Very true. High inflation and interest rates these days are forcing individuals and families to make tough choices.
0: Absolutely. Now, on the flip side, I know that some people... They don't want to get stressed out about their finances and they just ignore what their financial reality is. And that's not a good solution.
6: No, it's not. Actually, that's a very risky solution. So there are lots of things people can do to take charge and to help reduce that anxiety and help manage their stress levels around money.
0: One of those is uh, the Money Matters program that ABC Life Literacy Canada offers. Let's talk about that. How does this work?
6: Sure. Money Matters is ABC's free introductory financial literacy program for adult learners, and it helps them build their confidence and, as I mentioned, reduce their anxiety around managing their money. We've been running this program in Canada since 2011, and so far we've reached over 95,000 adults.
0: So what what is learned in this program?
6: Well, we offer a number of different resources and topics. We uh, offer a number of different uh, resources such as workbooks, activities, videos, online courses. And we offer them in many different topics, so you can choose. There's spending plans, banking basics, borrowing money, ways to save, smart shopping, all kinds of things to get you started and build your confidence towards managing your own finances.
0: And that's what it's all about, or at least that's that's a big part of the picture. You know, knowledge is power. Once you know how to work your money or how to save or how to borrow sensibly. And that that's only going to, you know, boost that confidence to yeah, whether it's, you know, creating a budget or, you know, tackling the debt that you have. That confidence goes a long way, doesn't it?
6: It really does. We see financial literacy as a bridge to independence and to help people achieve their goals
0: are we doing enough? I know that schools are doing a little bit more in terms of teaching their students now financial literacy. When, when I went to school, that wasn't even part of the equation. Basically, you did your math, you had your English and your science, and that, that was it. You didn't learn about mortgages or interest rates or you know paying off a credit card. Are, are we doing a better job now? Or is there still some room to grow?
6: There's certainly still room to grow. I, I agree there are lots of new Opportunities for learning in our education system that are being offered, but still we know from research that over half of Canadians face unsuitable numeracy skills, and less than half, only 46% of Canadians have a budget. Uh, more four in ten Canadians disclose that money is a daily concern. We know there's lots of issues out there, lots of different questions, and that's the thing about learning is that it never stops. We we have different learning needs as we age. So your financial literacy needs and the things that you need to know are very different at 25 than they are at 65.
0: And with technology, too, I mean, that there's also a learning process there because, you know, 20 years ago, it was very much different than what we're able to do now in terms of either boosting our financial literacy or just getting through the day-to-day rigors of, of the finances and all the different options that are out there.
6: That's right. There's so much now that's online. So digital literacy skills factor into this as well. And uh, that's another area that ABC also offers materials and free resources for.
0: With the Money Matters program, this is free, right?
6: Absolutely it is. People can access our materials in different ways. We can uh, show people materials online through abcmoneymatters.ca or uh, folks can go in person to attend a workshop in community across Canada. Uh, We do partner with community organizations and they deliver free workshops using our materials. Some people like to have that in-person experience and have someone there in person to answer questions and help them through the materials.
0: What kind of feedback do you get from people who are in the program?
6: Oh, people love it. They're ecstatic. They, They find it really does help to answer a lot of basic questions. And, you know, a lot of adults, they struggle with returning to what we might call the classroom, where they may have had negative experiences in the past or just might not be the best way for them to learn all by themselves. So sometimes it really does help to have that facilitator there, someone to help you and ask questions of uh, in person. And some people really gravitate towards that. So it's it's nice that there's an option there. Or if people want to access materials online, they do have that opportunity and they can access materials in the comfort and privacy of their own home. Everything is completely confidential and free.
0: Money Matters is just one of a number of programs offered by ABC Life Literacy Canada. You can get all the info online at abclifeliteracy.ca. Allison, thank you very much for the time this morning.
6: Thank you.
0: Allison Howard is the executive director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. Boost your financial literacy skills during Financial Literacy Month this month.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Back in August, Scott Radley was actually hosting Good Morning Hamilton at the time as I was off in the East Coast. But he spoke with an individual that we're going to have on in just a minute. Ah, uh, by the name of Steve Haining. Steve is a photographer, a renowned photographer who was behind a record-setting underwater photo shoot, and uh, which all went well. But now Steve has broken his own record. He is, in fact, a Guinness record-holding photographer. is a filmmaker. Uh, he's the CEO of Creative Inc. and joins us now on GMH. Steve Haining. Good morning. How are you today? Good
3: morning. I'm good. Thanks. How you doing? I'm
0: fantastic, and I, you know, I really enjoyed reading this story of what you were able to achieve back in the summer as you go underwater 25 feet deep to take some photos, and now you have broken that record. Before we get to the record-breaking endeavor, what led you first and foremost to go underwater to take photos of uh, what was a beautiful woman in an amazing setting?
3: Yeah, the uh the original idea was uh like a pandemic joke, actually. Like I I've been a diver for a while and I've done portraits in pools just because I love the atmosphere of it. And uh when there was the the phrase was going around like don't breathe each other's air. So <laughs> my my studio <laughs> team was like, Oh well, if we all wear our scuba, then we'll be able to still hang out and then you know that turned into well, wait a minute, we actually could just wear scuba and then shoot together and then that paired with uh, a bucket list thing of me, which was um, being able to go to Tobermory and explore all the shipwrecks that are so intact up there. So that's how the original idea happened.
0: And why Tobermory of all places? Like, does that hold a special meaning to you?
3: Uh, I So the location has so many shipwrecks, like dozens and dozens of shipwrecks. I think possibly the most in a condensed area, definitely in North America. Um, And because it's fresh water, they're all quite intact. Hmm. Nothing's really rusting down there. So back
0: in August, you undertake this photo shoot. It goes remarkably well. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome to make that photo shoot a success?
3: Well, the first time it was, can we even do it? Can we bring somebody down into really cold, open water? Can we make sure they're breathing and safe? Um, I've always said, since we started this, you know, we'll try it. But if it's not going to be safe, we're not going to do it because <laughs> there isn't really any margin for error. Right. Um, so the first time it was just, can we do it? The second time it was, how, how far can we push it now that we understand how it works?
0: So that endeavor, uh, you went down 25 feet. Uh, the next guinness record-breaking photo shoot happened even further down so tell us what happened
3: so yeah we went to uh we decided that (laughs) right when we finished that first shoot and it became a record you know we were like how far could we go and there was a wreck in that same area we really like uh it was sunk in 1999 intentionally to train scuba divers um do, doing their advanced diving and so we were like this is the perfect spot for it we know the wreck um it's at a hundred feet and uh so it's significantly deeper than where we had pushed ourselves. And, and it seems like it's deeper than most people have ever done portrait fo- photography ever so we kind of set our minds on that Uh, But it added the complications of as you get that far deeper, it becomes about seven degrees Celsius underwater, even at the warmest time Hmm. of year. And uh, that water on your skin feels a lot colder than seven degrees Celsius in the air, like just like up on the surface. And so we started going over logistically how it would work. And then when we figured it out, we picked a huge, huge, uh, elegant gown with like, it's one of those flying dresses from Greece that they hold out and they fly in the wind. And so we used that as the outfit and we brought a significantly bigger safety team just in case and then practiced for a couple of days and then went down and actually did it.
0: So you're you're shooting these photos a hundred feet in the water, and what about lighting? I mean, it does isn't it dark down there?
3: Yeah. So the deeper you go, you start to lose color very quickly. You you lose like the warmer tones first, like with yellows, and then oranges, and uh, reds, and then once you're down there, no light. Really, everything becomes blue and gray. So I actually did bring two um big tube underwater housing lights that are not not meant to go to 100 feet they're tested and rated to about 30 but could be pushed to maybe 60 <laughs> and so that light company was in contact with me because they had loved the uh the shoot i did the first time and they sent me some equipment and it was the first time in my life a sponsor has been interested in my work and i said cool i'll try it but i i might destroy it <laughs> and they said and they said yeah okay um so yeah we did bring lighting down there and that's why in the final photos you can see the red really clear in the dresses just because there was um studio lighting down at depth
0: where can our listeners check out the photos
3: um the photos are on my instagram Haining photo right now h-a-i-n-i-n-g photo uh they're also on uh petapixel which is a photography website so if there's any photographers listening it's pretty easy to find it there And the official record details are on Guinness World Records' website.
0: Last one for you. We've got about a minute. Are you going to go further down? I mean, you've done 25 feet, 100 feet. Uh, Is something else (laughs) on the horizon
3: or underwater? uh, I I think if I do go any deeper than that, we're going to have to do it somewhere like the Caribbean, (laughs) where (laughs) where it's a little bit nicer for the models.
0: (laughs) Good call on that one. Steve, appreciate the time. Congratulations. And uh, we'll touch base down the
3: road, I'm sure. All right, thanks again.
0: Steve Haining is a Guinness record holding photographer, film director, CEO of Creative Inc. And, uh, wow, what a really cool photo shoot it was. You can check out the photos on his Instagram. You can just Google them as well. They're all over the place. They really made international headlines. It was that sensational.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.